everyone. Welcome back to another edition of uh, our member podcast that we're calling Finding Our Way. Uh, excited that you join us again for this episode. Uh, I am joined this time by none other than our teaching pastor, Michael Kraus. Michael, uh, say hello to the crowd. Hello, everybody. Great to have you here in this uh, conversation that feels like we've been having forever, uh, <laughs> knowing that we go uh, back a little bit. Uh, for people who might be listening to this that that don't know any of sort of your background and how you ended up here and kind of what you're all about, just acquaint us to that, first of all, and then we'll have some fun with this. Yeah, I um, so all through university, I, I was going to the University of Waterloo, but whenever I was on a co-op work term, I would live back in St. Catharines whenever I could and... Living in St. Catharines meant participating at church, and that meant preaching uh, by then with some frequency. And uh, I remember in the spring of, of 1997 becoming convinced that I, I should go to seminary and get trained to do this sort of full-time as a living, doing the preaching thing. And Chris Fowler approached and asked me one day whether I'd be interested in preaching more at church, and I was super excited about that possibility, that... Um, that I could start preaching twice a month was something that he had invited us, me to think about and subsequently you to think about. Um, and uh, we, I made that commitment, as did you. And then we found out later that um, the board had met subsequent, well, probably prior to that and subsequent to that, to talk about the fact of actually paying us to do that. So we we kind of laugh at Fowler now because... He got us to agree to something, and we were willing to do it for free. And then he ended up offering us money anyway. Yeah, so we had we had pre agreed to do something that the church <laughs> then asked if they could pay us for. So that that felt like kind of a perk for so, kids in their mid twenties. <laughs> so in the in the spring of ninety seven, I had agreed to work construction for my dad and preach twice a month for free. And uh, throughout the summer, the uh, board had agreed that they would pay us to deliver two sermons a month. We were doing piecework. It felt like being on the farm again. <laughs> I, I was writing two sermons a month for uh, whatever it was, $10,000 a year. But um, by the fall, I actually had, I started working at the church, or at least my agreement to deliver sermons began on September 1st, 1997. And my first day of seminary was September 10th, 1997. And my very first class was Introduction to Preaching. And off we were to the race. And off we were. What I what I would like to press in on, though, is, is as a as an up close observer of your journey, is that combination that you're talking about, both of the communication skill and the passion for the Bible and to understand it better. And I, I think a lot of people, when they see preachers, they they interact with people that have some degree of communication ability, but they don't get to see what's under the hood of that and the passion and the diligence and even the work ethic uh, to try to understand God's word better. And I just would want to affirm that in you from the studious side, not just as a student, doctoral student or whatever, but as a, as a student of the word, that's been super impressive uh, over the years, the, the hunger that you've had for that. And frankly, that's what we want to talk about today. So that's a bit of a long way into the, into the conversation today. But uh, I, I would say around, around that first era of your seminary education, we started to kind of be exposed. And I was taking a few of these courses as well for some on-the-job training too. Not doing as well as me. Um, but... Yeah, not, not, <laughs> uh, not, not quite as academically inclined as you were. Um, but, but 
understanding that there actually was a more right way and a less right way to understand the Bible. Um, so talk about that in sort of a summary of how to, the one book was how to read the Bible for all it's worth, but like how to approach what God is saying through the scriptures. Yeah, I mean, up until I started seminary, I would say a lot of, I mean, all of my education when it came to studying the Bible and communicating it was just done by osmosis, observation of other preachers sitting in on Sunday mornings. And um, I did spend a semester at a Bible school um, in a gap year and just watching people teach the scriptures. But you don't really get the sense of what's involved in it. And so going to seminary and starting with introduction to preaching and realizing that there's actually, I wouldn't say necessarily a methodology, but there is a method to the madness that you're, I, I would say a lot of times I was going to the scriptures to try and find something to say. And, and then I, you know, as I started to go through seminary, I realized, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not looking for something to say. I'm trying to understand what the scriptures have already said. I'm trying to understand what the biblical author was communicating um, to their audience about what it means, what the gospel is and what it means to follow Jesus, and then asking the question, how are we like them? How can we understand um, the message that is being communicated to them, how can we begin to process that and live that out for ourselves? And and that, I mean, you're never going to enter into the head of a biblical author and know for sure what it is they're trying to say, but that's your goal. And, um, and there are, that means that there are closer and further, there are righter and wronger ways to read uh, the scripture. In fact, I, you know, I think about a passage like in Galatians chapter one, Paul says, if anyone preaches a gospel that's different than the one I'm preaching, you know, that, that person well, he says some really terrible things about them. They, they shouldn't really be preaching. And the idea is there's a standard to measure by. And, and, um, and the goal is to try and uncover what it is the author was trying to communicate to their audience. Yeah, I felt like that was the kind of mind-blowing or, or the, the real uh, trajectory-setting teaching that the two of us were, were processing in that era was that, you know, preaching and communicating, let alone understanding God's word, wasn't just what you sensed God was revealing to you in your personal reading of the scriptures, right? Like you were reading it like a newspaper. It was the process of trying to get at what the original author intended to say to their original audience. That was yeah. the language we yeah. used. Like yeah. we yeah. called it author. It's called authorial intent. What yeah. the, what the biblical author intended to communicate and, and uh, impact in their original audience. And that then became the, the journey. Well, and to a certain degree, it is, it is a little bit like the way you read the newspaper or a magazine article. You're trying to understand what the author is trying to say. And I would say, that matters. I, I would say there are other ways to read the scriptures if you're reading them devotionally or you're, you know, there are, God does prompt you to hear things through the scripture that uh, are maybe to the side of what the author directly intends or whatever. I'm not saying that, you know, somebody has to do what I do, study a thousand hours or whatever to understand a, a scripture every morning. But, um, but especially for for communicating what scripture teaches that's the goal and around that time uh when we're trying to cement sort of this this approach to communicating the scriptures 
where what we were trying to help people understand was what the original author intended to communicate to their original audience. I, I guess first things first, I'll say I'd like to get on the record that that approach to understanding the Bible and communicating the Bible actually hasn't changed in over 20 years. Never. When when Because one of the things we want to talk about is how we approach the Bible these days. And I would say at a baseline, one of the things that I anchor people in in, in conversations I have with them is that our approach to how the scriptures are to be understood and then communicated to other people actually hasn't changed one degree in in over 20 years of working together. And so I hope that people can appreciate just by context, that's, that's where we're coming from in a conversation about or even in the way that we uh, articulate what we understand God's saying through his word. Well, because I, I would say, just to jump in on that really quickly, um, there are things that I have changed my mind about over the years of studying the Bible. And and the concern is when I used to teach X, but now I teach Y, the concern that always comes back is, well, you have, you've changed or you are now doing something different or you don't, people sort of sometimes imply, I don't care what the Bible teaches in the same way. And my response is, no, I, I think after 21 years, I'm better equipped to read it than I was 21 or 10 or five years ago. And I hope, or what at least I intend is that I am actually engaging in a more informed and deeper and better reading now than the one I used to read. Right. Undergirded by that same goal. Under, right? Undergirded by exactly Under, the same goal. I still want to know goal. what the author is saying. Yeah. And so, you know, at some point, maybe earlier on in, in that journey, once that became your goal to, to try to understand what the original author was saying, or intended to say to their original audience, um, I, I remember very early on, it, it started to awaken understandings about God and what he wanted out of our lives, or especially our church, that may have deviated or differentiated from the way we were raised, or mm -hmm. from how you mm -hmm. understood faith. Do you remember any of those early kind of moments, or when, when you started to feel... I don't want to say enlightened, but just just awakened to the idea that the scriptures may teach something different yeah. than how you understood faith. Yeah, I would say, um, I, I, I mean, I don't off the top of my head necessarily recall a specific contentious issue. Um, I do recall, because when we, when we started the, this whole thing at working at the church, we were both 24 years of age and and preaching at that point primarily to people who had known us all our lives and who had taught us Sunday school. I do recall some uncomfortable conversations with people who who sort of felt like they had taught me Sunday school. They had, never mind, they had babysat me. Like, who, who did I think I was to now be saying something different than what I had learned? But what I remember in those early days or early on was suddenly being exposed to something I'd never really been exposed to before, and that was um, to viewpoints from other backgrounds and other perspectives, whether that was at seminary, um, where my first professor and mentor was a Christian Missionary Alliance background, um, and then eventually I switched to a Presbyterian seminary, which is a whole different kind of theological understanding, um, or some of my you know, early influential professors were Pentecostals, so there's much more of a, you know, a charismatic, Holy Spirit-oriented reading of the Bible than I than I was accustomed to growing up. But even in the church, there were all of a sudden, I remember early on, 
we found ourselves growing. And some of the people who were coming in those early days were people from a Christian reform background, which was a more conservative, more reformed way of reading the Bible. And uh, and people from, there was a, there were a whole crowd of folks from a couple of more charismatic churches and and then some former Catholics. And I just remember all of a sudden being exposed to a variety of ways to be equally as faithful to Jesus as what I had been raised to be, or a variety of ways to be equally submissive to the scriptures as I had been raised to be, equally in love with Jesus, and yet having very different frameworks or very different um, understandings of what the Bible was teaching and having to grapple with that. How, how do these people who love Jesus as much as me and they read the scriptures differently, uh, this, you know, as much as me and the same as me or whatever, but they come to such different conclusions? And how do you begin to reconcile that? And all of a sudden you begin to realize, oh, the, the way I have been seeing this thing is one way to read what these verses, what the original author intended by these verses. But there are other people from other traditions and other backgrounds with other kinds of education who are coming with the same goal and coming to different conclusions. Now, there's a need for a dialogue. Do you remember, uh, even in that early era, how this was not just affecting your church leadership? Because I, I, I'm sure that that people, especially if they've been around for some time, have experienced some of those things. But more personally, how those kinds of awakenings just affected you and the sense of what you believed or what you knew for sure. Or oh, yeah. when, when, when did that start uh, sort of contributing to or maybe even deconstructing some of the things that you had kind of understood were for sure's as far as what the Bible said. Yeah. Um, yeah, because, I mean, I, I one of the studies that I've read uh, is called The Critical Journey, and it talks about this, this phase of basically every person's own spiritual journey, spiritual development, eventually having to come to some form of deconstruction that um, at, at some point after you've you know, become aware of God and been discipled by the community into what faith looks like and begun to be a participant, contributing participant in the community, that at some point, essentially what happens is what the what answers you think you have all of a sudden don't work very well in the context of the life that you're trying to live. The Sunday school answers just don't, don't pan out anymore. And... Um, and then you've got to begin to pull apart your views and begin to say, okay, so then why do I believe what I believe? And, and basically begin to take apart the faith that you've acquired and essentially rebuild it in a way that is equally faithful and that enables you to go forward um, in your own life. And for lots of people, this comes uh, in traumatic circumstances. It comes through things like grief or it comes through um, the loss of a job or you're confronted with a scenario, uh, you know, a person who rejects you because of what you believe or whatever. For me, I would say the crisis was more intellectual. It wasn't, it wasn't emotional in that sense. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was more being exposed to, in a sense, being exposed to ideas 
from people whose education and uh, ability and years spent reading the scriptures were just so far outstripped my own, um, who were far more learned, but who were who were reading things into the text or out of the text that I had never seen before that was causing me to all of a sudden doubt whether or not I had actually genuinely understood my own readings. Because I, I would read, you know, the, the one particular person, his name's N.T. Wright, he's an Anglican theologian, that's another tradition that was a part of my own journey. And I would read his book about Jesus and... And I would grapple when he would explain what he saw in a text because it was so different than anything I'd ever heard. But all of the evidence was there. He was just piling it up that this reading makes more sense of, of you know, this story of Jesus or this parable of Jesus or whatever than, than what I had always understood. And then you begin to doubt yourself and you begin to think, well, then what do I really know? Like what? have I misread this whole thing and do I really get who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about? And it was experiences like that that forced me in a sense to go back to the drawing board or at the very least to be willing to not cling so tightly to the things that I had always believed but to come with more of a, I would, I would want to say, a humility, a teachableness, an open-mindedness to say, okay, you're coming at this very differently than me. You show me why you read it the way you do, and um, and I will be open to you persuading me that your reading is better than mine. And at times being convinced, and at times not being convinced, but but my posture changed, I would say, is the primary thing that happened. That it went from being convinced of what I know to be true, in quotes, and being prepared to defend that at any cost, my posture shifted to one of being open to hear what you have to say. You have to prove to me that this is a better reading of Scripture than than what I have been hanging on to, but being open to what you have to say and to be willing to enter into dialogue and maybe, most importantly, to be unafraid of somebody disagreeing with me. Obviously, this is, like you said, more of a academic, intellectual yeah, that was my type journey. of deconstruction. Can you just make one comment? This is just for, for listeners or members and others who are, who are listening, who may be in the middle of their own, what they would call crisis of faith, yeah. and having either circumstantially or otherwise, their, their sort of uh, theological perspective shattered to some degree, and wondering, you know, what do I really believe now? Um, or, you know, maybe a parent who is watching their kid. Mm-hmm. They've just gone off to school and now they're, you know, freaking out because their kid is going through a crisis of faith. Can, can you just kind of coach or just make some pastoral yeah. comments about the kind of person who's in that spiritual stage that you referred to, like in the Hagberg book, that dark night of the soul or yeah, that yeah, reset yeah, button yeah. Uh, phase spiritually? Because it's not necessarily all bad. No, 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 no. And in fact, I mean, we, in a paradigm of faith where certainty about what you believe is is paramount, that that's the most important thing, it certainly feels bad to be caught in a world of doubt, to be unsure what you believe, to be questioning things or whatever. We have, 
I think the church has often discouraged those sorts of postures, and I think we ought to encourage them um, because if you're a parent watching a child, I, I had this conversation with a spouse uh, once who's, who talked to me about how their partner was losing their faith, they were going backwards, they were so angry and so filled with doubt and, and whatever. And I said to them, you have to just walk with them through the process. Just let them go through this journey. And and it looks like they're giving up on faith. It looks like they're losing everything. It looks like they're being unfaithful. They're not. They're going through a very important process of actually giving up the idea of carrying a faith that somebody else handed to them and trying to figure out what it's going to look like for them to walk forward faithfully with their own faith. And so you have to let people go through that process and just be available to them, just be present to them, be there to hear their questions, to sit with them in their doubts, to not offer easy answers, but to say, hey, let's go, let's see if we can read some stuff or let's see if we can listen to a podcast about somebody who's talked about this and we'll talk about it later and to allow the questions to not shut any of that down, to not tell people to just have faith, to, to let them the space to go through the process, almost like in a, in a sense, almost like with your teenage children, where essentially their faith, the person's faith is going through an adolescence and they're trying to leave behind the faith, their parents, and they're experimenting with what their own faith is going to look like. And that results in a lot of questions and doubts and rejections and so on. If you're the one going through that process, I would say you have, you've basically four options. In the midst of the doubt and the frustration and the dark night of the soul, and when it feels so terrible and you feel so far from God, you can either walk away and say, well, I guess I tried Jesus and he didn't work for me. Or you can flop down and just kind of get angry at the church or angry at God or angry at life. Or you can try and retreat back to a more innocent and naive version of faith and pretend that you don't have all the doubts and that you don't have the questions. And, and none of those things are healthy. Your other option is to simply persist, to ask the questions, to press forward, to find people who will journey with you without judging you, who will listen to your questions and engage you in dialogue and who can be safe for you and just keep pressing on and trust that out the other side of that journey, to, to use the language from the Hagberg study, out the other side of that journey, they call a life of love where faith originates on the inside. It's not somebody else's and it, and it originates in you in the form of a love for God and a love for people that you is deeper and richer than you've ever known before. Yeah, I hope people are, are tracking with this, that, that a faith that is certain but inherited is actually less rich and deep. You're, you're going to experience less of the best of God than a faith that is less certain but owned. Yes. Right? The owned faith is better than the certain yeah. faith, especially when the certain faith is, is inherited. And the, and the hard part about that is your owned faith, when it's yours, it is going to look different than it used to, which means you're going to disappoint some people. It's going to look different than what other people would like it to look 
and that's going to disappoint some people. But you're going to be okay with where you're at with God in that space because it's you and you know the reality of your own faith. Yeah. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit because in this journey of sort of our life and, and ministry together and, and me watching this in in you, um, starting with and retaining this understanding of pursuing in the Bible the original author's intended point to their original audience, but appreciating in increasing ways, the language we use is that smarter, godlier people right. have interpreted and understood this differently than us. More and more over the years, we've tried to live in that kind of humility and openness for diversity of perspectives. A few years ago, though, I, I remember the two of us talking and kind of running into this freight train of feeling like in all of these capacities that we would imagine people kind of being able to agree to disagree. Um, the biggest roadblock we ran into was that some of these viewpoints people were holding more deeply than just a kind of an ancillary side theological issue. These these seemingly side issues were actually tapping into what we started to understand as virtually multiple different gospels, that people fundamentally were rooted in different kind of biases, I guess, at the end of the day, but different, different rootedness in what the gospel was itself. And I know last year in June, we did a series on this called, we called it Fake News, on, in a sense, these common, commonly rooted, quote unquote, gospels that aren't even necessarily the gospel. Can you whistle through those just off the top of your mind? I might be able to remember all of them. <laughs> I will try to remember all of them. Um, we talked about the... Yeah, the rules-based was first. Right, the right? rules-based gospel, which was more of the idea that what God ultimately wanted from us was our obedience to often a strictly defined set of rules and expectations so that... Um, you know what rules are are expected of you, and you know in that context sort of how to be faithful to them. So I, I remember a pastor saying in the church where he had served at one point, um, as a pastor, even, you could kind of be an angry person and you could even do a little gossiping on the side, but if you had a cigarette out in the parking lot after the service, you'd be done. You'd be fired the next day because it violated one of the community's rules, right? That 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 the expectations are that you would live a certain standard of life that involves things like dress, you know, how you dress when you show up to church and the kind of Bible you carry or don't carry. Yeah, whatever. words you use yeah. or don't use. Yeah. Um, another one was the shame-based gospel or the, mm -hmm. the shame-based sin management gospel. Talk about that psyche. Yeah, the, in when we talked about the shame-based sin management gospel, the, the emphasis of the gospel in that understanding is really about my sin. It's what a terrible person I am. And rooted in... Obviously, sin is real, and, and we are all afflicted by it, and we're all afflicted by it rather comprehensively in our lives. That None of that is being disputed, just like I would never dispute that there are uh, obedience standards to, to live that, you know. Yeah. There's, there's some truth. There, there's some the, truth, right. But, yeah. it's, but when it's overdone, so in that shame-based sin management gospel, the idea is that we so focus on our, our sinfulness 
or the shame of our sinfulness, that it's actually wallowing in this shame that I am such a terrible person, that's how I make the connection to God who is gracious enough to save me. And if I am ashamed enough of who I am, then I can find the sort of inner motivation to change my behavior and become different. Yeah, when my, it's sort of based in the psychology of I'll, I'll only change when my motivation to change is stronger than my motivation to stay the same. And the only motivation that's strong enough is the motive, the motivation yeah. of shame. Yeah, so absolutely. I actually, it's almost a, an addiction where I need people to tell me from the Bible how bad of a person I yeah. am, because it's only when I'm shamed enough yeah. that I'll yeah. then be prompted to turn to God for forgiveness and, and motivated yeah. to change. Outside of that, I, I don't change. Yeah. And so you've got that dynamic. Then there's kind of the, uh, we called it the, the, the fear-based or the eternity-based yeah. gospel. Yeah, we'll yeah. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, the eternity-based gospel is basically about heaven and hell. It's about... Um, where you, do, you know, the classic question that sort of encapsulates this is, do you know where you will be 60 seconds after you die? And the idea is that faith is framed almost entirely, has nothing to do with the life that I live here on earth. Faith is framed almost entirely as a consequence or in terms of the consequence of what will happen to me after I die. And quite often, that's rooted in the fear that a um, an angry, retributive God is going to send me to hell for being a terrible person. Right. Way and, more on the defensive. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've got these kind of three orientations, and then we, we introduce this fourth orientation of the love-based gospel. Give a bit of a yeah. rant on on how you understand the love-based gospel. Well, the, the love-based gospel, I could... This could fill up the rest of our time. The, the love-based gospel starts in who God is. God is love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sharing a love with each other that overflows into this impulse to share that love beyond themselves, into creating a world that God says is very good because it. he looks at the world and he sees something of himself, especially in the creation of human beings, people who were created as in consistency with God's very nature, they were created to love. They were created to experience a, a love relationship with God, created to experience love with each other, even, you know, a love for themselves as, a, as someone who has dignity just because God loves them, and to experience love for the world in community to live out a collective love for all of creation that loves creation into flourishing into becoming more and fuller, uh, a place that more fully reflects uh, the character, uh, loving character of God into the world. And in this understanding, um, sin is anything that disrupts love. Sin is anything that gets in the way of my love for God. Sin is anything that gets in the way or disrupts my love for myself or my understanding of myself as someone who's loved by God. Sin is everything that gets in the way of our love for each other and everything that gets in the way of our love for the world. So, um, and we're all afflicted with that. And so God, essentially, God comes in the form of Jesus to reestablish that love. The language of the New Testament is to reconcile everything back to God. And the language of reconciliation is mending broken relationships. And so Jesus, through Jesus... We are reconnected to God in love 
and we, I mean, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. We are, we understand ourselves as loved by God, as the adopted children of God. We, we live in loving relationship with each other in this community called the church. And then the church goes out and loves the whole world the way we were at the beginning. And Jesus basically sums up the whole thing in the New Testament. He says, the whole Christian life boils down to these two commands, love God as much as you can with everything you have and love your neighbors as much as you love yourself. And if you do these things, you've done the whole thing. That's the way until Jesus returns one day and he restores all of creation uh, to be a place that is filled with God's love. That's the and story. That, and that's really, I would say from my experience, the the uh, sort of recent in the last number of years now, the, the recent spiritual awakening. And again, understanding mm-hmm. what original authors intended to say the original audiences is how primary the law of love is throughout the scriptures front to back. Absolutely. The nature of God fundamentally described as synonymous with love. The greatest commandments when Jesus was challenged that he defines in this two-directional love for God and people. You know, the Apostle Paul saying you can do and know and be a lot of things, but if you lack love, you're nothing, right? That's just the essentiality of it. Other biblical authors, especially the New Testament, using phrases like above all else, right? And right. that kind of prioritization. Uh, in Galatians 5, the, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Words like all and only and everything and nothing and just the extremity with which the Bible uses the language of love to define fundamentally who God is, what Jesus has done, and what a life of faith in him empowered by his living spirit is about, is all about that. And what it's done now, kind of all this getting to today, it's it's put us in this place where we're trying to both live out that primacy mm-hmm. of the gospel of love with this posture of smarter, godlier people have read and understood things that are less core to a life of faith and less core to salvation even uh, differently than us. And so as a community, we want to make space for that Mm -hmm. as we pursue Mm -hmm. love together. And we've called this kind of the play on words is love beyond belief. Talk about your sense of how God is leading us in that way and, and what you hope people would kind of grasp or embrace in in this, really, this theological construct that we find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that an impulse that the church has often shown, and I mean the church everywhere, I don't mean just Southridge, but an impulse that the church has often lived out is this desire... Um, to have everybody within its confines all on the same page when it comes to what it is that we believe and how it is that we live out our faith in Jesus Christ. And this this expectation that um, you have to agree to be in community together. I, I remember a friend of mine, it was probably you know almost 10 years ago now that he first came to Southridge, and after a couple Sundays, he took me out for lunch. And, and the one question he wanted an answer to is he said, I personally um, don't believe in hell. Can I still come to Southridge? And his full expectation was that if we didn't share that conviction, that the answer would be no. You can't come because you don't believe the same way that we do. 
And what I've come to believe is that when the Bible talks about the, the church as the body of Christ, and everybody in the church is a member of the body of Christ, and that means everyone in the church is unique. Everyone in the church is different, and everyone in the church, because of their uniqueness, has unique value to add. And that the goal of the body of Christ is not sameness. It's not making everybody look like each other, talk like each other, believe like each other, act like each other. The goal of the body of Christ is to experience the unity that comes when everybody's uniqueness is respected and embraced and allowed to make a contribution to the community life, to make the community more like Jesus. The, the end goal in the metaphor of the body of Christ is that if all the unique parts show up and they make all of their diverse contributions, the more that's true, the more the church looks like Jesus. That's the assumption right in the passage. And so, Rather than trying to talk people into all believing the same thing and, and seeing what it, you know, their own calling to discipleship has to be lived out in exactly the same way, more and more I'm valuing the diversity that when people believe differently and cre it creates richer conversation about what faith means and it gives greater opportunity to experience the unity that comes in the midst of diversity that is representative of who Jesus is. And, and um, rather than saying to everybody, you know, every, for everybody, faith has to mean making this choice. No Christian can go to an R-rated movie or whatever the, the standard, arbitrary standard is that we're setting, to say, no, you have to work that out for yourself. You have to work it out in your conscience before God, you have to work it out out of love for him and you have to work it out in dialogue in the community with people who love you and who love Jesus and who all want to move together forward in faith. But we need to discern these things together and each of us can land in different places but live in unity that reflects Jesus. That's the church looking more like Jesus than when everybody believes the same and acts the same and dresses the same. Yeah, and yeah. And I hope our, our listeners, especially those of us as, as members or prospective members, are, are, are tracking with what we're talking about. Again, whether you agree with it or not, it's, it's a different point. But because this is Membership Affirmation Month and around here, um, you know, one of the one of the commitments or one of the applications of the biblical value of spiritual membership is kind of a, I'm into what God's up to in, in, in this local expression of the family of God. And I mean, we'd want to be pretty transparent that this is a pretty fundamental thing that people are then into, that when it talks about the kind of vision, mission, model, perspectives, and even theological rootedness, you know, to, to, to be tracking at Southridge is to be on a journey of a greater degree of love beyond belief. And, and in that sense, what we're, what we're trying to facilitate and invite people into, not, oh, I'm going to be a member here because they believe all the exact same things 
as me. That's not the point. It's the unity in diversity as we pursue this life of love and the theological primacy of the law of love together. So knowing that we're going to have this conversation, I'm sure in richer forms uh, over the next number of months as we utilize this uh, podcast resource and as people engage in dialogue two-way with us in in response, um, any, any sort of just preliminary and final for this podcast, any preliminary encouragements that you would want to provide members or prospective members as they're kind of, you know, getting queasy about what what being part of a church that's that's pursuing love beyond belief uh, would mean? Yeah. Well, I would say one thing just to sort of follow up in the comments you were just making um, diversity of theological belief and so on, that doesn't mean that we don't share any beliefs in common. We do. We hold to the core um, beliefs of what has made the church the church as defined by the church over its history. So things like the Apostles' Creed, if, if you know what that is or you can Google it, um, which which define the church has always used to define the core commitments of what it means to call yourself a Christian as opposed to call yourself something else. Um, our denomination has a brief confession of faith um, that um, captures or is sort of our own summary of those core commitments that we hold to together as a church. So it's not that you know, anything goes and it doesn't matter what you believe and whatever. We have these shared commitments, but they are the shared core commitments of the Christian faith rather than raising every issue about which we can possibly disagree, which is all of them, to the level of something worth fighting over. Um, as far as the the personal living out of a love beyond belief within our community... I would just say, you've used the phrase a couple of times of recognizing that there are smarter, godlier people on all sides of every issue. And when it comes to the two of us, they're definitely smarter and more godly people than us. Um, but to carry that humility around, to recognize that God is revealing himself to even people that you disagree with, that God is guiding them into truth, as scripture promises the Holy Spirit will do for every one of us. And to listen for that truth, to ask, to posture yourself in terms of what can I learn from this person about what it looks like to love Jesus and myself and each other in the world, rather than posturing yourself in terms of how can I get this person to agree with my belief system, um, to aim for diversity in your relationships, to aim to be in relationship with people who who are from a different background or from a different context or live in a different socioeconomic reality or a different race or a different gender um, different sexual orientation to to deliberately expose yourself to relationships of diversity and to see, to watch people real time loving God and loving their neighbor and so on and realize that God is at work in them and, and allow that to broaden your horizon of how you see faith and discipleship and, and so and, on. And I appreciate you going down that road because at the end of the day, I think that's what we would want for people, not just to kind of sign on or sign up as members of a church that's aspiring to pursue a love beyond belief to a greater degree, but to actually want to become those kind of people themselves. Mm -hmm. The humility and the teachability that you've talked about in your own journey, when you become aware that smarter, godlier people than you understand and interpret 
the scriptures differently, the primacy and the priority of the law of love in the scriptures and the resolute commitment to be a person of the scriptures mm-hmm. and to fanatically seek out what, in increasing ways, you understand the original author intended to say to the original audience. I mean, those those are kind of the anchors to all of this that we want, not just for our church, but for people's lives. Humility, love, rooted in the scriptures. That's where we want to land. So, uh, Mike, thanks for being here today. Everybody, I hope that you'll engage with us in conversation about this. I'm sure it'll stimulate a whole lot more podcast conversation, but we really appreciate you uh, joining us today as we continue to find our way. We'll see you next week. Take care.